But I think in all of this, our hope is to say, we are, if we're going to take a side, it's the side of Christ. We want the gospel to be proclaimed. We want people to come to Christ, to know Jesus on both sides of those borders, uh, for Palestinians to be blessed by the gospel and Mm -hmm. for Jews to be blessed by it. Welcome to Reformed Podmatics, a weekly podcast hosted by Pastor Mark Van Dyke and Pastor Zach Dewey of Almond Valley Christian Reformed Church in Ripon, California. In each episode, we strive to apply Reformed theology to life and ministry in the 21st century. Thanks for joining us for this week's conversation. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to Reformed Podmatics. I am Pastor Zach. And I'm Pastor Mark. And today we are getting into a subject that many of us have been thinking about over the past few weeks, uh, ever since the beginning of this new uh, episode of war in the Middle East taking place in the nation of Israel and uh, between Israel and its surrounding neighbors, uh, Palestine. And so in this episode, we are going to be sort of talking about this, not so much from a news or punditry sort of place. That's not our place as pastors. Uh, we, we don't know all that's going on in every detail. Uh, we know probably just about as much as the average listener out there as to what's going on. And so we want to focus in this episode really on the theological issues at stake for Christians. Uh, We have been thinking about this as pastors for the last couple of weeks and having conversations together about these issues. And so we wanted to sort of share our thoughts and help in some way uh, our congregation and our listening audience to think through this from a biblical and reformed theological perspective about the, the nature of the debates going on right now. And so we do this with a little bit of uh, fear and trembling, knowing that there is a lot of complexity to all of this, especially the uh, discussions and debates or arguments that are going on, not just about the current uh, war that is taking place between these two nations, but really the century or so amount of history uh, with the Zionist movement, as well as Christian Zionism, and the debates over whether or not Israel should be in this land, or uh, all of that sort of stuff. And so there's a lot of things to cover, but we hope in some way to help with the theological uh, aspect of this discussion. Yeah, what we have seen in commentary online, what I've seen during the last several years as well, is where bad theology results in Christians taking positions um, often very strongly, that aren't really biblically warranted positions. Um, t- to give you two quick examples of what that could look like, where theology would determine how somebody is seeing the events of the Middle East, hmm. um, we can think of somebody like um, the pastor Andy Stanley, who grew up in a very uh, in a Baptistic setting and um, very strongly dispensational, which is maybe for those more lay listeners, this is the idea that God related to humanity in one way during um, the Old Covenant through Israel and in, uh, in, an, in a different kind of way, a different dispensation in the New Testament, and then there will be future dispensations where Israel has a thousand-year reign in the world and, and Christ rules 
on a throne in Jerusalem and mm-hmm. so forth. In um, the real city of Jerusalem. Yeah, yeah. and so um, that, that theology requires very specific events to unfold in, mm-hmm. um, in history, not just at the return of Christ, but leading up to the return of Jesus. And so these people are very worked up about when the rapture will happen, for example, and the eye is always towards Israel and supporting Israel, um, often kind of being blindly loyal towards Israel, regardless of, of their mm-hmm. issues. Um, and so somebody like Andy Stanley, who grows up in that context, sees some of the errors of it, um, will say, oh, well, we got to get rid of the Old Testament. I mean, that's mm-hmm. causing people to think wrongly about, yeah, we got about a, a this. hitch from the Old Testament. That, that was the word, the verb that he used several times in a sermon a few years ago. We, we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament, yeah. which is a shocking thing for a pastor to say. But the reason, part of the reason he's saying that is he has seen how um, misunderstandings of the Old Testament can pull people into some bad theology and bad even political theory in in this day as well. Uh, so that's that's one example, or kind of two examples within the same one of <laughs> dispensational theology um, with a blind loyalty to Israel. No matter what, we're just gonna. I see people posting this on Facebook. Support right. Israel no matter what they do. Um, without much consideration that it's an atheist secular nation right now. Um, And uh, on the other side, almost saying it doesn't matter at all uh, because uh, people have have heard uh, throughout the course of their life so much support of Israel that they would almost be driven to oppose Israel in a a kind of pro-Palestinian way um, and do that blindly as well. So we want to avoid some of the the bad um, excesses yeah the excesses the responses that come from uh, a bad theology and, and we want to offer up as we try to do in every episode a reformed understanding today particularly how the church relates to Israel um, what is the connection to the Old Testament the New Testament um, what is the the Christians, um, what is a good Christian biblical philosophy or theology of um, how we should think of Israel today? Hmm. Yeah, and so I think I think that's a good place to start, just by noticing that uh, we as pastors have been seeing what people have been doing as far as posting their hot takes. Maybe hot take is sort of a rude way of putting it. Maybe <laughs> it's just a take, um, but. There has also been questions coming in to us. I, I, I've had a couple of people ask me, what should I make of this as a Christian? What should I make of what's going on there? Should I be should I be pro-Israel? Should Christians be pro-Israel? We've had people asking us in our church. And mm-hmm. so this is one route we hope to take in terms of uh, trying to give a good lay of the land, an introduction to how Christians ought to think about, about these issues. Um, and I think, yeah, we want to avoid uh, the different kinds of ditches that can so often be fall or be uh, where we fall into. Um, yeah, and maybe one addition to that is uh, just sure. recognizing there are levels of complexity in yeah. this conversation. So, on one hand, you have the very uh, complex theology of how the church should relate to Israel historically, connection of New Testament to Old Testament, mm-hmm. um, and. Another layer of complexity of that is the socio-political complexity of the situation. So you have mm-hmm. right now um, a feud that yeah. has been happening over 
many decades and and generations, even centuries, mm-hmm. between um, Arab people and mm-hmm. Jewish people, and we're so far down the road that um, no one knows anymore who shot first and so forth. I mean, there was a recent situation, of course, sure. where Hamas, the terrorist organization, goes in to massacre Jewish people, um, and Israel responds by mm-hmm. by bombing the Gaza Strip very significantly, um, and so that's a complicated political scenario. Of course, we we have to condemn that that behavior of uh, of massacring unarmed civilians at a music festival and people in their homes mm-hmm. and in the streets and so Absolutely. forth. And so uh, we're not going to use um, the theo- the theological angle as an excuse against dealing with current events. I think that that can happen sometimes mm-hmm. in, in the church where, uh, oh boy, this is really complicated and I don't want to make a statement so let's just theologize or spiritualize yeah. things. I hope that we're not doing that. But while we do talk about theology, we want to do so humbly because of the complexity of the current situation and the historical situation and the theological situation. There's yeah. all these different layers of um of complexity and so um we are very humbled as we begin this podcast. We've been humbled as we've studied this recognizing we are not absolute experts on um, replacement theology, um, you know, a Jewish history, uh, political, uh, 20th century political history in the Middle East. Um, we're, we're pastors who study the Bible, and Zach teaches the Bible to young people and to our church through adult Sunday school. I preach sermons and, and make my visits and so forth, and that's where a lot of our life is. And so we're stepping into this, having done some reading, hoping to help our listeners, but we're stepping into this area not so much as the ultimate authority on these these difficult topics. Yeah, so I, th- I think we can start maybe with some of the background uh, from the historical background of what's been going on in this strip of land. Uh, if you know your ancient history, you know that this has been a contested piece of real estate for a very, very long time. Uh, if you know the Old Testament, you'll know that uh, the land that is now known as Israel and or Palestine uh, was part of the promised land given by Yahweh to his people, to uh, the descendants of Abraham. And they were told to go and to make war with those who lived there. This is the land of Canaan, as it was called then. And they go and they conquer Canaan. Uh, they are supposed to completely eradicate the inhabitants of the land, but they fail to do so. And they leave many there. But for the most part, it is a success in terms of conquering the land. This takes place in 1300 BC. And from that point, um, well into the future, this people known as the Hebrews or the Israelites uh, live there and it's the land of Israel. And then, so you have the Kings come after the judges and you have the kingdom of David established. This would be about a thousand BC. Uh, And then from here you have the exiles that happen a couple centuries later, uh, the Assyrian exile and the Babylonian exile in 722 BC and 586 Uh, BC, uh, respectively, for those two uh, exiles. And so from here, the the question mark begins to loom over 
who has this land because now this land has come under the occupation of these foreign powers. Uh, but then uh, right at the uh, around f- 515 BC, uh, the return from the Babylonian exile happens. The Jews are sent back to their land. They they rebuild the temple. This is the second temple then after the temple of Solomon. Uh, and so they live in their land, but they're still under foreign occupation for the most part. And so it's this uh, kind of time where a shadow of foreign power still looms over this land. And then eventually getting closer to the time of Christ, you have uh, Rome's takeover in the first century BC. And so this land is now occupied by Rome, although Jews are living there and, are, and have some freedoms. They are under the thumb of Rome, you might say. And this is what colors the, the history of the Gospels as we read them. We, we read about different Roman governors who were in control of the region at the time. That helps us to date the different events of the Gospels. Of course, you have uh, Pontius Pilate at the time of Christ, who is uh, the governor who decides whether to crucify him or to release him. Uh, And so you see that this is all part of the history. And then very importantly, after the time of Christ, during the lifetime of the apostles and of that generation in the year 70 AD, there is the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple at the hands of the Romans. Uh, The Romans destroy the temple. uh, And this is a decisive, you might say seismic moment in the history of, of Judaism and the history of Israel as a nation. Uh, over the next few centuries, then Christianity becomes sort of the ascendant power, especially as the Roman Empire, which still controls this land, becomes itself a Christian empire. Uh, this land is now sort of occupied by Christians, and that lasts up until the uh, Islamic invasions of the seventh century uh, after the beginning of the Muslim faith. Uh, with the Quran being given to Muhammad, I believe, in the year 610 AD. And so this land now is occupied by Arabs at that point in time, from 636, which was when Jerusalem fell to the Arabs. And so from the 7th century, uh, for a very long time, this land was, for the most part, occupied by Arabs, maybe with the 200-year or so uh, period where the Crusades had retaken this land Uh, by Christians, and it was restored to Christendom for a time. And then after that, you see the Ottoman Turks um, mostly controlling this land up until the 20th century, which was, of course, when Israel became the modern state that it is today. And so we give that sort of little time lapse of history to sort of show the complexity of this. Mm -hmm. Whose land does it belong to? Or who 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 does this land belong to, and all those kinds of questions, which are still raging even today. Of course, this is the big question between Palestine and Gaza, or in, in Israel, and so this all colors how we think, mm-hmm. um, and how different people on both sides of the of the argument uh, will see things. They will they will have their sort of biases and their connections to different parts of this historical. A telling of the story. Uh, and so it's helpful to know before we go into the theological issue here, issues here, which is really where, where we want to focus, it's helpful to know a lot of this stuff in the sort of background of our minds. Yeah, and all along the way, I was um, reminded 
as, as both of us were researching that and even as you're describing it, how there's always been a mixture of people living in, yes. in Jerusalem in particular and in this yeah. area of, of the Western Middle East um, as well. Just uh, using the Crusades as an example, the Crusaders hmm. were, were often very anti-Semitic. And um, mm-hmm. and would would um, would war against Jewish people. Um, yeah. They wanted it, it for Christianity, right? Um, in the same way that they were against, um, you know, uh, the, the Arab powers as well yeah. that were there. So, uh, um, one of the uh, I would say unfortunate things about how we think of of war or even of diplomacy today is just to think purely in terms of good guys and bad guys. We almost think of every war like it's World War II, where, um, yeah, I mean, one of, one of the ultimate examples of world history where there was an evil empire, two evil empires, that of Japan and Nazi mm-hmm. Germany, mm-hmm. that were evil to the core mm-hmm. and needed to be defeated. And um, thankfully, they were defeated by the allied powers and so forth. And so given the, the stark contrast, and, and of course the allied powers did some evil things during World War II as well, hmm. but th- that example looms large in how people understand warfare today still, yeah. where um, um, the Vietnam War was very, very morally complicated. Yeah. And the Iraq war was very morally complicated. And, and, and I think that that is also the case in hmm. what is happening in, um, in the Middle East. Again, saying it's morally complicated doesn't equivocate the evil that was done by Hamas against Israel with yeah. the, the bombing, say, of the Gaza Strip of Israel against Palestinian people. That's a great point. Um, it's a point we need to make forcefully, I think. Yeah, and so we don't want to equivocate um, massacres with um, a response to the massacre where there could be collateral damage. However, we do want to say it's a massively complicated issue where people who have historically hated one another are living as neighbors mm-hmm. or just have a barbed wire fences in between their lands. And um, mm-hmm. and how, how we move forward, I think the Christian can have a, a pretty definitive answer in a theological sense um, that will actually help us move forward even in this conversation with some confidence. Um, and so, uh, you know, just giving the spoiler away, I, I, it has to do with the gospel. I mean, we want <laughs> Israel to be evangelized to um, for people hmm. who are rejecting God's son, the Messiah, Jesus, to come to faith in Christ. And the same for the Muslim Arab people in the in Palestine as well. Um, I would love to see an ascendancy of Christian Palestine, uh, which is hmm. about seven to ten percent of Palestinians are Christian believers. And so um, we, we desire the gospel to be preached there. Um, we don't know exactly what political solutions there will be or should be in the next few days or months or years. But as Christian ministers, and I would hope as every Christian listener um, would would look forward, we want Jesus' name to be exalted in yeah. Israel and in Palestine, and and peace um, we know can come from that. Yeah, I, I think that that's really the substance of our entire episode here mm-hmm. is that the gospel is something we desire to see proclaimed and made known to all peoples, including. Uh, the Jews, especially 
to the especially Jews. to the yeah. Jews. That's a good way of putting it, because <laughs> if you read the New Testament, that becomes clear. And it's clear not only in Paul's letters, but it's clear in Paul's practices in the book of, of Acts. We just preached, we finished preaching through that this summer, and it struck me in the many chapters I preached just how it was so routine for Paul and his companions when they enter into a city, even a, a Greek city, where did they go first? The synagogue. They go to the Jews first. Some Jews would usually believe. Some would get very angry and would uh, start getting disruptive. And so then they would turn and start proclaiming it clearly to the Gentiles of that city. And so Paul says in, in Romans chapter 1, for example, uh, it's for the, the gospels for the Jew first and then for the Gentiles. Not, to the, not that the Gentiles aren't supposed to get it or that they're second-class citizens, mm-hmm. but the, the gospel comes from the Jewish people. It's therefore to, to be proclaimed to the Jewish people and therefore then from the Jewish people where they are called to be a blessing to the nations. It's exactly that. From the Jewish line, which is the Messiah, goes forth the gospel of grace to all nations so that they may be blessed. Uh, but backing up a little bit mm. and maybe thinking more about the mm-hmm. sort of uh, geopolitical questions that are looming in people's minds right now, uh, one question I think as we get into the theological issues here that we might sort of think about out loud together would be whether or not the establishment of the state of Israel in 1948 has any spiritual or prophetic significance. This, this for many people uh, in the movement known as Christian Zionism, if we can call it that, some scholars would call it Christian Zionisms. There's all kinds of variations mm. on this, yeah. uh, but they all have the common theme of seeing Israel and the nation, the real nation of Israel, the state of Israel as, as exists today as a fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Uh, do we see it as such? And I'll take a quick stab at this and just say that there are various reasons why Christian Zionists see 1948 as a fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Typically, these biblical pr- prophecies are f- fairly obscure texts or the, the interpretations are obscure as to how they get mm. there, mm. Uh, or they're almost too wooden to be taken seriously. Um, one example would be uh, Ezekiel thirty six twenty four, where it talks about uh, going back to Zion, uh, and how God will gather the people from all nations and bring them back to Zion. Sure, Isaiah uh, 60 does that too. And yeah. there are different places in the Old Testament where this sort of stuff uh, is taught. Uh, so Ezekiel thirty six twenty four, I should quote without just giving you my own paraphrase. Mm-hmm. Uh, it reads, For I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. Okay, on the face of it, that sounds... Definitely like what we've seen in the 20th century, Uh, the Jews were dispersed throughout the nations and God brought them back. Uh, Is that what it's talking about? I think when we read Ezekiel 36 in the full context of the chapter, what we see is that God is talking about uh, the new covenant, uh, which through which God would gather his people from all nations, meaning the gospel would go out to all peoples and they would be gathered in not to the nation of Israel located east of the Mediterranean Sea, but that they would be gathered into the spiritual people of Mm -hmm. God, Mm -hmm. uh, the ecclesia of God. And so passages like that may be seen to be 
proof texts, I think, of of Israel's return in 1948, as if that's now been happening. And I, I've I've watched videos of different organizations that are Christian organizations in Israel, um, where like Christian Friends of Israel is mm-hmm. one of them. Uh, they they all have different similar sounding names <laughs> of that. Uh, but the Christian Friends of Israel is is an interesting one. The woman who who runs it, uh, Sharon Sanders, is very much just bent on the fact that if you bless Israel, God will bless you. And so you must be friends of Israel. It's not so much promoting the gospel in Israel, promoting Jesus. It's mostly just providing good things for people because God will bless you with that. It's kind of a prosperity gospel, it sounds. And that's another big thing in this whole Christian Zionist uh, movement. Mm -hmm. In the last several decades, it's gone from being a purely uh, theological or sort of, you might say, dispensational thing that's kind of the, that the dispensationalists were the prime primary christian zionists mm. now it's almost moving more towards the uh sort of health wealth and prosperity gospel types who see well we god blessed israel in very physical and material and financial ways if we bless israel in those ways god will bless us in all of those ways we kind of attach ourselves to the physical material uh blessings of Israel. And so it's almost like instead of pay me, send money to me, the televangelist, and God will give you money. It's kind of like if you do that for Israel, God will give you blessings straight up. And so she will often quote uh, Genesis 12, 3, uh, I will bless those who bless you, Paul, or God tells to Abraham. And so uh, (laughs) they take that and kind of just run with that as a sort of carte blanche uh, approval of yeah. pure Zionism. Uh, it's like an, a, a really interesting perversion of the golden rule, right? What is the golden rule? <laughs> uh, treat others as you would like to be treated. This is treat others so that you will be treated yeah, um, yeah. well. Treat Israel in a certain way. That's a good way. So that God becomes like um, the uh, the slot machine that you pump the quarters into and you give Israel what they want so that you'll get the jackpot. Yeah, yeah. And so... I personally don't see that there is any real prophetic significance to the state of Israel in 1948. And that may rub people the wrong way. I I will say, and this is where I make a fine distinction. I I think as a, as an American, I'm happy to have a nation set up there that shares some of my values and concerns. uh, That is a national ally um, as a democratic nation, for yeah. example. I have my own questions and moral ponderings over whether or not it should have happened in 1948 uh, or that, that Palestine should have been split up the way it's been split up and people were displaced. Uh, that is a, is a different question and that I wrestle with and I'm not so sure of. I, I see the, the moral difficulty uh, of, of displacing a people that had lived there for many, many hundreds of years. Uh, and so... But in terms of having Israel there now, I, I can't say that there's no spiritual significance mm-hmm. to it, but not the kind of spiritual significance that people often apply to it when they think of, oh, Israel has returned, God's people are coming back to Zion, we're living in the end times, and we're living in the age of Bible prophecies being fulfilled. That that part I actually don't subscribe to personally at all. 
And so we can then sort of move from from that sort of hot button question <laughs> really now into the yeah. meat of the New Testament's witness about the relationship between Jews and Christians. I think many Christian Zionists will uh, highlight certain parts of the New Testament where there seems to be a high priority on what we've already kind of talked about, the evangelization of the Jews, how the gospel comes from the Jews. It's supposed to be preached to the Jews. They have special rights, as it were. And so we want to explain what the New Testament mm-hmm. teaches about Judaism and the church. And so, Mark, where would you start uh, in terms of trying to do this? <laughs> well, it's, uh, uh, the first passage that came to mind was John 8, where hmm. uh, Jesus uh, is talking with some Jewish leaders about truly being a child of God. The Jewish leaders disagree with Jesus. They're there to test him, to try to trip him up, and, and they're there to set a kind of theological trap for him, as they always do. Um, and I'll just read from John eight thirty six through 40, because it's in this passage that Jesus um, gets to the heart of what it means to be a child of God. It doesn't so much mean to be an ethnic descendant of Abraham, mm-hmm. nearly so much as it means to, it, it requires someone to trust in Jesus. And so Jesus starts in John eight thirty six. if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. He's just been talking about how they were slaves to sin, but he's come so that people might have freedom from that kind of slavery. He continues, I know you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are ready to kill me because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you do what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do the things Abraham did. As it is, you are determined to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. So there Jesus is drawing a distinction, which I think is the one that every Christian needs to have in your minds when thinking about this matter of Israel and the people of God, is the people of God, the children of God, in the the fullest spiritual sense, are always such by faith, Um, faith in Jesus. That is true of the Old Testament, where uh, people had faith in the Lord and Yahweh, trusted him, served him, um, were were filled with his spirit. And of course, it's the same in the New Testament as well. I think where people get really tripped up is giving Israel a kind of pass on faith in Christ. Um, this happens so much so where yeah. uh, you would hear people, uh, like I think of Christian TV, uh, again, you talk about those prosperity gospel types, who would almost say, Israel is like the varsity team, they're God's plan A, and God gave them this special everlasting blessing, and if you're Jewish, you are, you have a special place in the kingdom of God by virtue of your ethnicity, and, um, and we Christians are grafted into that. It's almost like we're the, the junior varsity team mm-hmm. or the plan B. Um, but a- again, Reformed theology has, has no place for that kind of, of theology um, where God's people, there has always been a church under the true kingship of Christ, uh, the true Israel, the Israel of God or the Israel of faith, mm-hmm. um, like the Apostle Paul says, the Israel of God. Um, and that's what Jesus is describing here. If uh, if there's room in your heart for the word of God, if you're trusting in the Lord, um, of course we have knowledge now in the New Testament of 
of mm. what that ought to be, which is trust in Christ for salvation in his death and resurrection. He is the Messiah. Um, then you are among the people of God. And, and I, I always want to encourage people, encourage Christians, not to get so bogged down into the, the question of um, sort of the place of Jewish people as a whole in the kingdom of God and get more focused on the matter of faith. Hmm. Um, are, are, are people trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation? Because if they're trusting in their ethnicity, mm-hmm. um, that's an, or their that's works, an, or their works, that is yeah. an idol that, that won't deliver that, uh, them. Yeah. I, I want to echo that with a quote from Herman Bovink, our podcast's namesake, who we mention from time to time, uh, In the Reformed Dogmatics, in the fourth book, in the 16th chapter, he writes these words, and I think it perfectly uh, summarizes what you're saying, although it's a little bit of a lengthy quote, not too long, but I'll read it because I think it's extremely helpful for us. He says, "There, there is but one way to salvation for all, faith. The faith as it was practiced by Abraham, even before the law came and was reckoned to him as righteousness. And here he quotes Romans 4, 22 and Galatians 3. Those of the Jews who reject Christ are not really true Jews. And he quotes Romans 2, 28 through 29. They are not the circumcision, but the mutilation, as Philippians 3, verse 2 tells us. They are the irregulars, idol talkers, and deceivers who must be silenced. And he references Titus 1, verses 10 through 11. They have killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets as well. They persecute believers, do not please God, and oppose everyone. They hinder the apostles from speaking to the Gentiles. Thus they constantly fill up the measure of their sins, so that now God's wrath has reached its limit and is being discharged upon them. And here he quotes from verse Thessalonians uh, 2, verses 14 through 16. He continues, the Jews who slander the church of Smyrna, though they say they are Jews, are not. Rather, they are a synagogue of Satan. Mm. Real Jews, the true children of Abraham, as Mark just mentioned, he says, are those who believe in Christ. This is the New Testament's judgment concerning the Jews. The community of believers has in all respects replaced, and I don't think that's actually a very good word here that Bavink uses, but he says, the community of, of believers has in all aspects replaced carnal national Israel. The New Testament is fulfilled in the new, or the Old Testament is fulfilled in the new. Mm. So I think his broad point here is really uh, great and really accurate. We are all saved through faith in Christ. And so the Jew needs to believe uh, just the same way that any Gentile would believe. I said I disagreed with that last line about the replacement of carnal national Israel because I don't think the community of believers replaces carnal national Israel. I think the church is the continuation of true Israel, mm. the faithful Israel. In the Old Testament worldview, there was really three groups of people, three categories, and that would be national Israel. It would also be true spiritual Israel, the sort of remnant that we see carried all the way through, the nation goes into exile and the remnant, the faithful remnant, uh, returns. Uh, And in a sense, the faithful remnant is always with God. Right. Yes. And so in the church, when the New Testament comes, and the new covenant is what that means, 
the gospel preaching goes out. We see this in the book of Acts in the first few chapters. It starts all in Jerusalem where the apostles begin their preaching. Who becomes the first Christians? Jews, practicing mm-hmm. Jews who hear the gospel and convert in their thousands. This riles people up. Some get very angry. And so here we begin to see the division of true Israel from false Israel. Mm-hmm. And so we have to make these kinds of distinctions, I think, to stay on track with what the scriptures teach us. Another really helpful place to turn, though, in the New Testament, I think the mm-hmm. seminal place to turn is the book of Romans, yeah. uh, which people may often think of as being a classical Protestant book for all of the great Protestant things it teaches, which it does, and especially uh, justification by grace through faith. Uh, but in some ways, you could say that the book of Romans, the, the sort of leitmotif or the sort of string that connects the whole book together is Paul's explanation of uh, the gospel as it relates to Jews and to Gentiles. Hmm. The, the church in Rome, for all we can tell, is probably a strong mix of both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians who are beginning to wonder about the place of Israel as a nation, as a people uh, within God's plans and how Gentiles have now been, they, they would have said, added in, or so how, how they have been become members of, of this church. Uh, and so the major theme you could see, I think, throughout the book is this question of, of Israel belie- Israelites, or not Israelites at this point, but Jewish people mm-hmm. and the gospel. And so we could start really in the first chapter, as I've already mentioned, uh, the gospel comes for the Jew and for the Gentile. Uh, well, I'll pick up in Romans four thirteen through 14, which again echoes what Mark has already said from John chapter 8, uh, where Paul writes these words, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. Paul goes on in this passage through the end of the chapter, verse 25, to talk about the faith of Abraham and how it was his faith uh, that he was uh, he was justified before the Lord. Uh, and so it's the descendants of Abraham who are his descendants by faith, not his physical descendants. Of course, in the Gospels, the Pharisees and the scribes and many other Jewish people would have taken a lot of pride in the fact that they had physically descended from Abraham and were offspring of the patriarchs. But Paul here is saying it's not so much whether we are physical offspring as it is whether or not we believe. Now, jumping all the way into chapter 9, just because we're trying to give the big overview here, Mm -hmm. chapter 9 through 11 really is uh, the sweet spot of this discussion between Israel and the church. Uh, And Paul gives us what I would say is a sort of multi-layered perspective on how Christians are to think about Israel, uh, especially in that threefold category of national Israel, and we're talking Old Testament, ancient national Israel, not the modern nation of Israel, Uh, and then true Israel and the church. He writes these words in verses one through eight of chapter nine. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Note first his love for them, 
mm-hmm. uh, his his d- deep passion for his kinsmen according to the flesh, but he also calls them kinsmen according to the flesh. They are not kinsmen according to faith. They do not believe. So he continues in verse four, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who was God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And so they have these great privileges. They they are this historic people that God has chosen for himself to accomplish his his purposes in the world. Mm. But he continues on and he's reflecting on the fact that many of them, for the most part, the majority of them have rejected Christ. So he has to go into a sort of a defense here of what God is up to, to explain what God is doing. So in verse six, he says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed for not all who are descended from Israel, that would be physically descended from Israel. He says, not all of them belong to Israel and not all are the children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means, Paul says, that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Hmm. And so here he's defending the, the accusation that maybe God's word has failed. Uh, look, Israel has clearly rejected the Messiah. Uh, they booted Paul out of Rome, as we read later on in the in the chronological story of the New Testament. They or they boot him out of excuse me out of Jerusalem. Uh, he goes to Jerusalem even to perform sacrifices in the temple, probably a Nazarite vow in order to show the Christian faith's sort of solidarity with. Uh, spiritual Israel, Mm. and yet this does not go well, and it leads to a whole cycle of events where Paul is uh, kicked out very harshly, and they attempt to kill him uh, even and conspire against him. But he's saying that this doesn't mean God's word has failed. This doesn't mean that God's purposes for blessing the nations through Israel have failed uh, or that his faithfulness to Israel has, has failed. And he makes that important point in verse six, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. There's that important distinction. There's true Israel uh, that is distinct from just the nation or physical Israel. And so this, then we can see this sort of track into Romans chapter 10, where he basically makes the point that uh, we must proclaim the gospel to all peoples. And he's including in this context, two two Jews who don't believe it, uh, how will they believe unless they have heard and unless somebody preaches to them? And so he that's what chapter 10 is all about. And then it comes to its climax in chapter 11. I don't know, Mark, if you want to take it from here to sort of uh, give your thoughts on chapter 11. Uh, but he begins to get into, yeah, he begins to get into uh, these questions of the root and the tree mm-hmm. and Gentiles are, are, are now... Uh, grafted in, he's saying. He's beginning to explain how what God is up to in all of these sort of important events that have taken place in the first century with the coming of Christ. And so he starts out in chapter 11 saying, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, mm-hmm. for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So here he's vocalizing all of his Jewish credentials in order to make the point that no, God has not rejected his people. This is what he says in verse two. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. 
Do you not know that the scripture says of Elijah how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant, Paul says, chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Hmm. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So here he's making that distinction again about the remnant. God preserves for himself a remnant. But then he turns, and the in, starting in verse 13, and turns to the Gentiles and talks about how they are now part of God's people. And I, this is a long section. This goes all the way really to the end of the chapter, from mm-hmm. verse 13 all the way up until chapter 32, or verse 32. After that is the famous doxology of Romans. Mm-hmm. But here he gets into the weeds, you might say, of uh, being grafted in. And so I think it's important to read a chunk of this passage as well. And this will be my the end of what I say for, <laughs> for Romans here. So in case you're getting a little bit uh, overloaded, I promise a speedy end here. He says, Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to somehow make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection, the rejection of Christ, means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches." But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Hmm. Then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith or through belief. So do not become proud, but fear. So don't get arrogant, you Gentiles. Uh, He continues in verse 21. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And we could continue on there. But I, I think what's important to note in all of this is that Uh, God does not replant another plant. He doesn't give up on this first one. Uh, He he cuts off uh, unfruitful branches and he grafts in those who are fruitful. And by fruitful, we mean faithful. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those who trust in the promises of God. So those would include Gentiles. And so this is why I don't like the terminology of replacement theology. Uh, for what we're saying. He's not replacing this organic plant, uh, the root. It's the same roots. He's grafting in uh, wild olive shoots, which would be the Gentiles. He goes on then in the rest of this section to talk about how uh, there will be a time where Jews return and, and, and come back. And this has led to a lot of speculation and and interpretations that have sort of argued for different uh, argued for in different interpretations of how to take this passage. Uh, it seems to me though that there, there is still a serious place in God's plan for for the Israelite people, but that place is for them to come in through faith, 
for them to come in through Christ, mm-hmm. not to just rely on their own uh, physical uh, genetic makeup. They're being descendants of of Abraham, and so the focus here is that they will they will come, but they will come through the Messiah, and they will return to Him. Uh, and so we don't we don't say that there's no spiritual import to the the Jewish people. I think there is. And I think we have to reckon with the fact that in some way, somehow through, through the centuries, they've remained an ethnically identifiable people, uh, which is quite the feat to put it lightly. It's, it's really nothing short of a miracle. Uh, and so in all of this, there's, there's a long sort of overview, but Paul's thoughts on the nation of Israel and of the church are complex uh, you can see his love for Israelites, for mm-hmm. his fellow Jews, uh, his kinsmen according to the flesh. I think we should therefore see in that uh, those words of Paul. A, we should we should see in that a a uh, exhortation to love Jews in the same way, to have that same view. But he also wants them to come through the Messiah, and so we as Christians should want the same for Jews and for all people to come to the Messiah. The Jews do have that a special place and in sort of earthly sense or a, a, uh, the sense that they have all these real blessings of being the old Testament people. They have, they're the ones from whom the worship and the, the patriarchs come. They're the mm-hmm. ones from whom the covenants were given. Uh, and all of those things that Paul mentions at the beginning of chapter nine, uh, and so all the more should we want and pray for their conversion to Christ. And so I'm not a, I have no problem with, with Christians going into Israel and seeking to befriend them. But I think the friendship should be very clearly for the sake of telling them about the Messiah, that the Messiah has indeed come. That's the preaching of the book of Acts. It's so often that Jesus is the Messiah. That's what Paul wants to argue. That's that's his proclamation. Jesus is this Messiah. The Messiah we've been looking for has come. All right, I'll end it there, Mark. And <laughs> with that 15-minute or so no, uh, exposition, uh, you can add any thoughts that come to mind for you. Yeah, three applications and uh, things that bounced around. I, I was even taking some notes while you were talking. Um, so with the, one quick application is this will help a Christian think rightly about say, a psalm that celebrates being a part of Israel or God's blessing upon Israel. I know that some people struggle with Mm. passages like that, wondering like, okay, are we praying for like those people who live in those coordinates right now in in, um, the Middle East? Or are we just praying for Old Testament people? Are we glad that God blessed them? I would say, based on what Jesus said in John 8 and what Paul wrote in Romans 9 through 11, any blessing upon Israel is a blessing upon a believer today. Yeah. So that really um, turns some passages from black and white into full color in a lot of ways for the modern Christian reader of uh, yeah, Old absolutely. Testament promises and the Psalms where um, Isaiah's great prophecies of the glory of, of the new Israel, of, of mm. God's restoration of Israel. Um that doesn't mean that we're we're waiting for for God to create a glorious national hmm. uh, identity that is Israel that is seen in the church already and will be fully manifest in the new creation. And so, a Christian can celebrate passages of that that are very um, seemingly Zionistic 
Um, I, I would say it is Zionistic in the spiritual sense, yeah. um, especially in the latter chapters of, of Isaiah. So you read those passages, um, Christian listener, and uh, celebrate that by Christ you are grafted into all those promises that Israel receives and the blessings that they receive mm. by grace. So um, a second application is, I think Paul definitely guards us against anti-Semitism, where you have... Um, mm historically uh, very anti-Semitic um, movements in the church. Uh, Martin Luther, uh, the Puritans, guilty of some anti-Semitism. Uh, the Crusaders, of course, very guilty of that. Um, Certain I'll, Christians in Germany in the 1930s and 40s. Yes, um, and even still there's a lot of anti-Semitism in Europe, uh, mm -hmm. even still. And uh, we're guarded against that because of uh, we're, we're grafted into the kingdom of God alongside of Jewish people. Yeah. Um, Paul tells us to not be arrogant or prideful, to think we're better than them. Yeah, absolutely. And <laughs> and so important things. Uh, to, to be anti-Semitic is such an unchristian, profoundly unchristian thing because Christ himself was a Jewish man mm -hmm. and um, salvation came through him, through a Jewish man into the world. And so we celebrate that. Yeah that uh, God was faithful to his promise to Israel, um, raised up a generation that included Mary, a faithful Jewish young woman, um, and, uh, and we, can, we can celebrate that and be glad about it. Now we also um, can speak openly about how the Jews, the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day rejected Christ. And so um, we don't wanna be so overly sensitive to anti-Semitism that we can't say the things that the Bible says about the Jewish people who rejected Jesus. That, yeah. That's a movement right now where, um, where because anti-Semitism is a problem, mm -hmm. the pendulum then swings to the opposite side so that we can't even say things that the Bible says about um, Jewish leaders rejecting Christ, mm -hmm. stirring up a crowd against Jesus, yep. um, and saying, May his blood be upon our hands and and on the heads of our, our children. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so that's a complicated thing to work that out. That doesn't permit anti-Semitism, but um, it does mean that Jewish people in Jesus' day rejected Jesus. And, and that has spiritual um, implications. And, right. And so uh, that's yeah. a second. Uh, we want to be guarded against anti-Semitism. And thirdly, we do, want, do, do not want to discard the Old Testament. Um, again, I started off by talking a little bit about Andy Stanley and his very, very significant error of unhitching from the Old Testament because yeah. the ceremonial law, the moral codes of the Old Testament, all this confusion about Israel makes things complicated sometimes for Christian evangelism. Um, I, I feel so strongly about this that I don't think people should listen to Andy Stanley unless you almost are listening just to, to gain knowledge of his position, not so much because he's a spiritual authority over mm -hmm. anybody that could be trusted. And so don't just take it from me, take it from Herman Bovink, who, who talks of the value of the Old Testament for Christian understanding of the Lord today. Herman Bovink said, nothing of the Old Testament is lost in the new. So that's a big consideration. It's the opposite of what Andy Stanley is teaching. He, Herman Bovink, nothing of the Old Testament is lost in the new, but everything is fulfilled, matured, has reached its full growth, and now, out of the temporary husk, produces the eternal core. Bovink continues, it is not the case that in Israel there was a true temple and sacrifice and priesthood and so on, and all these have now vanished. That would almost be like a pure 
replacement theory. Um, mm-hmm. But he, mm-hmm. he, he doesn't say that's all gone now. No, he says the converse rather is true. All of Israel only possessed a shadow, but now the substance itself itself has emerged. So the Old Testament certainly has value. We, we learn about Christ as we read about Abraham and David and Moses and um, and against, we learn about the errors of the, the bad kings and the longing that there was for a great virtuous king in Israel. Um, so it's, it's not as though we can unhitch or disregard the Old Testament, um, but what is promised in the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ. So just like what Jesus did on the men, on the, for the men on, on the road to Emmaus, explaining the scriptures so that they would understand that he's the Christ, um, that included bringing out the Old Testament um, and and explaining how Jesus is the fulfillment. So hmm. that's kind of where I would go with with this um, yeah, connection of, of Israel to uh, modern Christian theology. Uh, there's lots of other places we could go. I think our time is pretty <laughs> much up, and yeah. so um, we uh, we thank you for listening. And and I guess um, I just want to encourage people to trust in the Lord, um, not so much to trust in. Uh, a, a perfect treaty that will solve this problem in the Middle East. I hope there is a treaty soon, and that would be a good thing, um, mm. that, that there would be peace in Israel and Gaza, um, but um, not to blindly take up sides on one side or the yeah, other. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Um, just to, to recognize the complexity of the issue, um, the supremacy of Christ over all people, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And so... Um, uh, not not to uh, not to get too wrapped up, I guess, in we must support Israel blindly and at all costs, no matter what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, but also to be on guard against that that very real thing that is anti-Semitism as well. Yeah, yeah. I think the the, the comment you've just made about taking sides is a, is where I was going to go to. I think we can get so caught up in that question of which side do we take in all this? Are we pro-Israel, pro-Palestine? I mean, there may be some. Uh, more, I would say, progressive or uh, liberationist-minded Christians mm-hmm. listening to our show who are almost on the opposite side of of things and would say that they maybe are pro-Palestine. Um, and that may be fair in terms of the historical debate of whose land it is, which we kind of talked about at the beginning. But I think in all of this, our hope is to say we are, if we're going to take a side, it's the side of Christ we want the gospel to be proclaimed. We want people to come to Christ to know Jesus on both sides of those borders uh, for Palestinians to be blessed by the gospel and mm-hmm. for Jews to be blessed by it. And our hearts are saddened by what we see, the the horrible things. Um, and again, we don't want to morally equivocate between what's clearly terrorism and what is clearly a sort of justified response, I would say. Uh, but it's it's sad and horrible to see what's happening on both sides of, of the border. Mm. Uh, and we pray for the gospel to go forth and for people to know the king of not just Israel, but the king of the world, who is Jesus. And so, yeah, we thank you guys for listening and for taking your time out of your day or week to uh, check in with us and to hear from us. And we pray that this has been helpful in in helping you think through Uh, all that we see, not only on TV, but thinking through our scriptures more importantly. So until next week, grace and peace, you guys. See you.